picture of hope that is. And, and we're going to look at a parallel passage to that this morning. If you have a Bible, please open with me to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, and we're really going to pick up a passage that we began last week. Uh, we began last week in verse 7. And this morning we'll pick up kind of in verse 12, verse 13, and study through verse 21, the end of the chapter. The title of the message today is Life Transforming Love. I mentioned last time that this passage really has given me, maybe more so than it should, but it's given me all kinds of mental grief because I'm a neat, clean outline kind of person and preacher, and you just can't do that with this passage. The the, the main point is really clear. John is calling us to brotherly love that flows out of God's love for us and our new life in Christ. But, but the Spirit takes us on a path that at times feels like it's kind of twisting and, and winding because he hits on so many topics. He, he just kind of skims the surface as it is on many of these outworkings that we see of the love of God being perfected in us. What, what we see is the inward effects of God's eternal saving and sanctifying love. And, and we see how his love changes and transforms our hearts. And, and thinking about the ideas that are before us, we see that we are to confess and testify of Christ, that we are to walk by the Spirit. We display the Spirit as we walk in love. We see that this gives us hope and judgment, that we are to abide in God and to abide in love. And the challenge to me in this text is that these ideas don't really have much commonality. The commonality is that these are the outworkings of God's love in us. The main idea is brotherly love in and through Christ and we see the outworkings of those as God's Spirit works in us, His people. So let's look at our text, and, and I think the Spirit, as He often does, will clarify in our minds what He intends for us to have. So stand with me if you are willing and able. As we read Holy Scripture, we'll pick up at 1 John chapter 4, verse 12, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. This is God's Word. It's holy inerrant and inspired. This is God speaking to us, his people, today. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testify that the father has sent the son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love of God, the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. 
For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. May the Lord write his word upon our hearts, and may he sanctify us by his word through his spirit for the glory of his name. You may be seated. Now join me and let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our great and mighty God and Father, we come before you only as those who are washed in the precious soul-cleansing blood of Christ. We know that the only way that we can come before your holy presence it's because of the finished work of Christ at the cross. May we glory today in the cross. May we understand, Lord, the great love poured out to us through the sin-bearing wrath of the Father, the, sin, the, the wrath-bearing death of the Son. May we, Lord, be perfected in this love. May we be sanctified in this love. May we consider the love of our Savior and seek to imitate that as we live in this world alongside one another. Pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would help and do the work to illuminate our minds and our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would give us understanding that you give us humble hearts that are ready and eager to receive and apply your truth. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, as Christ prayed, would you sanctify us by the truth? We understand the importance of the Holy Spirit's working in this time. If we don't understand that, I pray that you would open our eyes to our need for your spirit. I pray that you would help us to receive your word, that it would be planted in our hearts, and that you would cause it to grow and to bear fruit. Cause us in our lives to bear much fruit and thus glorify you, our Father in heaven. Lord, as we consider the outworkings of your command for us to love. Pray that our minds and our eyes would ever be set and fixed upon Christ. For it's Christ who is the great example, the great standard of this love. So while we must consider how we apply your word today, may we first see the glory of these truths as displayed in Christ. Lord, would you help us today? Would you cause your spirit to work in us in a powerful way? Would you sanctify our souls for the glory of your name? <clears throat> May we be a people called out of this world, the possession of Christ, ever and always being conformed to the image of our beloved Savior. Thank you for Christ, and we pray all these things in his name, 
and in his name alone, amen. So again, the task today is a little bit challenging because we have this broad picture, this broad scope, kind of a summary even idea of what love ought to look like, what it accomplishes in our lives. It is a life-transforming love. But we've got to find these common threads to pull and to weave this passage together because otherwise what we're going to have is four mini-sermons pressed together in one. And, And so we need to understand that everything we consider today flows out of the call to brotherly love. Let us love one another. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. So this all flows out of love, and we're going to skim across some ideas today, some that we have considered in recent weeks, some that we're just going to have to table a little bit because we want to wrap it all together in one section. So what is John's aim? What is the purpose here? The purpose is to exhort the saints to walk in brotherly love because of God's love for them. To exhort the saints that because of God's love for us, our hearts and our minds and our affections ought to be transformed. Again, it's an all-of-life transformation. It affects the things that we think. It affects the things that we love. and affects what we say, how we speak. This picture ought to give us confidence before the holy judgment of God because we see the transforming work of Christ worked out in our lives. So it gives us hope. It gives us confidence. John writes, I think flowing out of his example here, that this love that God works in us moves us to testify of Christ, to proclaim Christ, to confess Christ. Christ, and to do so as John was doing in his day, even in the face of much hardship and suffering. Pulling this together, John is reminding us that love for the brethren proves that we love God. Uh, That kind of ties it together, and loving God gives us confidence before his throne and his judgment. Let me give you a thesis, kind of a a guardrail, maybe for myself even more than y'all, but a a guardrail, a thesis, a purpose for our time today. Just pare this down into a single sentence and statement. God's love for us in Christ must move us to confidently profess and proclaim Christ while we selflessly love our fellow saints. That's the guardrail for today. That's the road, the path that we're going to try to navigate and stay on. God's love for us in Christ must move us to confidently profess and proclaim Christ while we selflessly love one another. So sketching this picture, we're going to see the implications of this love. This love is spirit-displaying, it is Christ-proclaiming, it is hope-producing, and it's faith confirming, spirit displaying, Christ proclaiming, hope producing, and faith confirming. We begin at verses 12 and 13, kind of pick up a little bit of what we left on the table last week in verse 12 and moving into verse 13 and see that this love is spirit displaying. 
No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So think then here, what all John ties together. It's kind of this long statement that ties together several ideas. Loving one another proves that we know God. It proves that the Lord abides in us, that his love is being perfected in us. We abide in him because his spirit is in us. So then take the first and the last of that and just just look at this statement that our love for one another proves that God's spirit abides in us. Brotherly love proves that you are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Think about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. That ought to make perfect sense. The fruit of the Spirit, where does Paul begin? The fruit of the Spirit is love. If the Spirit is in you, you will love one another. To love God, to love others, is to display a life that is controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. Put that another way, you will never love one another if you're not walking in and being controlled by the Holy Spirit. This love that John calls us to is unnatural to our fallen and fleshly state. It goes against our natural state of depravity. But beloved, you are new in Christ. And being new and being made alive in Christ, you are made to be one who is capable of this love. You will have to fight and you will have to battle against the flesh that remains. But because you're new and alive in Christ, as we saw in Romans chapter 6 earlier this morning, because of that new life, you are able to put off the flesh, to walk by the Spirit, to walk in newness of life, and love marks this newness of life. The first step to growing in brotherly love is to walk by the Spirit. To put off sin, to put off fleshliness, to put off this self-centeredness that is so common in our day, and to walk in and to walk by the Spirit. If you struggle with brotherly love, look first to see if there's some sin or fleshliness in your life and put it off and walk by God's grace, in the Spirit. And do you see that this this Spirit-displaying love of God is kind of a mutual abiding? It's a mutual abiding. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us. This highlights the external nature of this God-wrought love in us. If you're striving to love in your own strength, or by your own doing, or in your own way, you're going to fail and you're going to miss the mark. James Montgomery Boyce wrote of this, that to believe in Christ and to love the brethren are not the conditions by which we may dwell in God. They're not the conditions by which we dwell in God. But rather they are the evidences of the fact that God has already taken possession of our lives to make this possible. That ought to give you great encouragement. That ought to give you courage and strength 
as you strive to walk in this love because any little inkling of this love being displayed in your life is evidence not that you've mustered up the strength to do it, but that God has already taken possession of your life and you are being conformed and transformed day by day into the image of His beloved Son. Deny yourself and you will prove that God has taken possession of your life. That's what Jesus told his disciples, is it not? In Matthew 16, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Biblical, selfless, God-pleasing love often takes on this imagery. You deny yourself. You deny that which you might think is a right or a privilege or that which is owed to you. You deny yourself. You take up your cross and you follow Christ. You walk in his pattern. You walk in his path. You follow his example. And the great comfort here is that day by day, moment by moment, even as you deny yourself, what is happening? You're proving that you abide in God, that he abides in you, and that he has taken possession of you. You belong to him. And this is a love, dear friend, that you must take up every day. Jesus didn't say, deny yourselves a couple days a week. He didn't say, deny yourselves up to a certain point. He said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow. That means today, tomorrow, Weeks, years, decades ahead, pick up your cross, deny yourself, love one another, and follow Christ. And do this, as we see in this point, in the power of God's Spirit. It's a Spirit displaying love. The home, just think about how to apply this for a moment. The home and the family are probably the easiest areas of our lives in which not to show this kind of love. To sin and not showing this kind of love, the first place you're going to see this come up in your life is in your home and with your family. So what we can draw out of that then is your home and your family is also the most important place where you must strive to walk in this love. You know, it's kind of like what John kind of draws out at the end of the passage that If you hate your brother, you can't love God. If you hate your brother whom you've seen, you can't love God whom you have not seen. If you can't love the very family that God has given you, if you can't display selfless love day after day in your home, then any love you show outside of the home, any selflessness that you walk in, in in the general public or with your church family, really all that is is a show because what you're proving in your home is that when it gets inconvenient enough, when selfless love gets hard enough, you're not going to do it. So you may be able to put on a show and show some selflessness while you're gathered with your brothers and sisters. But if you're not loving in your home, that love here will not last. It's hypocritical, really, and it doesn't please the Lord. So as we think about God's love being perfected in us, dear friend, let's first understand that it is a spirit displaying love and we pursue it and we walk in it 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you're struggling to walk in selfless love in the home, you need to walk by the Spirit. You need to put off the flesh. Secondly, it's Spirit displaying and it's Christ proclaiming. This love is Christ proclaiming. Look at verses 14 and 15. We have seen and we testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Now, important to understand in those two verses is the context. Don't lose sight of what John is, is pressing us in. It's brotherly love flowing out of the love of God for us. God loves us, we love God, and we love one another. That's the context in which John says, we've seen and we testify that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Son of God, and whoever confesses the same, whoever says the same thing, they prove that they abide in God. So you see that there's two statements there then to consider, one in each of the verses. Firstly, we see that it's love for Christ, ultimately, that drove John to testify of Christ, to testify that the Father sent the Son into the world to be the Savior of the world. John is, I think, in this statement, a little bit still in defense mode. Again, we're talking about the immediate context. Think about the larger context. He's defending against Gnostic heresy about who Jesus is. He's saying, oh, by the way, I have seen and I am testifying to you that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. He says, I've walked with the Messiah. And do you see what walking with Christ produces in John? It's a devoted love that will not fail. Following Christ was costly in this day, and we'll come back to this idea in a moment. But do you consider the result of walking with Christ? What did that produce in John? He walked with him, was in his intimate, close circle of friends. And what it produced in John was a love that would testify of the truth of the Messiah. Let me ask you this question. We are to be like Christ. We are to be Christ-like. Does our life, does your life have the same effect? Do you point others to Christ in such a way that they will stand and profess him no matter the cost? That was the effect that Jesus had on his followers. Those whom he, he would call and bring and draw near to himself, they, they saw the beauty and the glory and the future hope and glory of the Messiah, and they were willing to sacrifice everything. They were willing to lay everything aside for the sake of following Christ. And this is especially true after the resurrection and the ascension. And dear friend, we live in those days, in that same age. Good leaders produce followers. But let's clarify that statement and, and make it a much more biblical statement. And that would be to say that good Christian leaders produce those who follow Christ. A good leader in the world will produce and will, you will see coming after them those who follow them and who walk in their ways and who imitate them. But we don't follow that pattern of the world. 
If you are to be a good leader in the Christian sense, you produce devoted followers of Christ. If your goal is to have someone imitate you, dear friend, hear this, you are missing the mark and missing the point. We should always evaluate that because self and pride and the desire to be first is always there. Even if you want to feel like you conquered that sin and uh, we would pray that the Lord gives us growth in that. Understand that pride is a monster that you can never defeat. So always evaluate your life and your heart. Our goal is to not make followers of ourselves, people who are patterned after our own image. We are to be like Paul and say, follow me, imitate me, only as I imitate and follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. Notice the rest of verse 14. John says, we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent the Son, but there's a reason given. He sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Draw that back now to the idea of the cost of the testimony and the proclamation of Christ. By the time John wrote this letter, he was probably the only remaining of the original disciples. The disciples had all been martyred. The apostle Paul had already been martyred for the faith. John himself would soon be exiled to the Isle of Patmos, where he would eventually then be martyred himself for the faith. And yet he stood and he proclaimed. Think of Revelation 1.9. John says, I, John... Your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation, in the kingdom, in perseverance, which are in Jesus. I was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Because I proclaim that Jesus is the savior of the world. That's what set people off. That was the proclamation that the world hated. They would receive Jesus as a historical figure. What they would not receive is Jesus as the Messiah who calls the world to repent and to turn from their sins and to come to him and to lay down their lives and to pick up their cross and to follow him. John's love for Christ was so great that he was willing to suffer whatever cost to testify that Jesus was the Son of God and the Savior of of the world. He witnessed all this hardship. He saw all this suffering, but he never backed down. He never softened the message. He never doubted his calling. He never doubted the instruction of the Lord. He never doubted the power of the message of the gospel. Dear friends, that ought to be our hearts. John was facing great and formidable foes. John had to know that death could be right around the next corner at every moment. Really, the, the early church, the early Christians, one thing that they all knew was death, and suffering, and hardship for the faith. But John's love for Christ, when you point your eyes down to verse 19, we love because he first loved us. John's love for Christ that was his only because God first loved him, drove him to testify. Testify is the Greek word 
martyreo. Do you hear martyr in that? John's love for Christ drove him to testify and to willingly be a martyr for the sake of Christ. But that's not all he says. He continues on. Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So maybe you're asking the question, are are we to do the same thing John did? Well, John says, whoever confesses, confesses is the word homo logeo, to say the same thing as another. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, God abides in him. One of the primary marks that God abides in you and you abide in him is that you love him so much that you will proclaim Christ no matter the cost. We can talk about holy living. Scripture makes clear that we as saints and followers of Christ are to walk in personal holiness. We can consider the call to brotherly love which John and all of Scripture hold in highest regard. Dear friends, do you love Christ so much that you will ever, always, no matter the cost, stand and proclaim him? Will you boldly, proudly, publicly align and identify yourself with the Lord? A little bit we come to the waters of baptism. Public identification with the Lord Jesus Christ. So Ella, Grace, as you are going to be baptized, this is what you're doing. You are publicly aligning and identifying yourself with Christ. And those of us who have already been baptized, we've already done it, and we need to continue to walk in it. You need to walk by the Spirit to have the boldness and the strength and the courage to proclaim Christ no matter the cost. Richard Baxter, one of the great well-known Puritans, said, If there be glory laid up for them that die in the Lord, much more shall they be glorified who die for the Lord. There is glory stored up for all of us who die in Christ Jesus. How much more, I think Baxter is right here, how much more is the glory in store for those who die for the sake of Christ? The love of God in us is spirit displaying and it's Christ proclaiming. And thirdly, and this is a grace and a kindness of the Lord, as we flow out of this idea of the suffering that can come for the sake of the gospel, The third thing that we see here is this love is also hope-producing. It's hope-producing. Look at verses 16 through 18. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. The one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us. So that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears 
is not perfected in love. So this is one of those areas where we're just going to do a little bit of surface skimming because I want to draw something out of each of three, these three verses to see the hope that is produced as God's love is worked in us and perfected in us. Verse 16, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. So you might be thinking back when you hear the statement. It might, it might be ringing a bell because we see a similar statement to this somewhere else in Scripture. John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, Jesus has dispersed the crowds by saying, you need to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. There were huge crowds following him. He made that statement, and many departed. Jesus asked his disciples, he said, are you going to abandon me too? The, those 12 that remained with him, are you going to abandon me too? And Peter, as we know, the one who's going to speak up, John 6, verse 68 and following, Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Then what does he say next? We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. What does John say in 1 John 4, 16? We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. Do you see the link there? We have believed and come to know that you're the Holy One of God, and we have come to know and we have believed the love that God has for us grace of God this is, that he opens our eyes, that he brings our dead souls to life and allows our minds to see and to know and to hope in the love that he has for us. You know, there are those in the world who don't know, that don't know Christ in a saving way that might believe in who he is. They give mental assent to who he is, they know what scripture says that he's done, and they may not even disagree with it, but they've not come to him in saving faith and repentance. But John is writing to the saints. This is John saying, like Paul would say in Ephesians 3:19, that, that we know and comprehend the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge. This love of God, the love that he has for us, we see it, we know it. We comprehend it. We believe in it because it's plainly displayed at the cross. And knowing it and believing in it, we have hope. Because the Lord's love doesn't change. The Lord's love is a fountain that never runs dry. J.C. Ryle said that Christ's love toward us, not our love toward him, his love toward us, is the true ground of expectation and the true foundation of our hope. The love that Christ has for us is our grounds of expectation and the true foundation of our hope. It's not your love for him because, as John will say later on, we only love, why? Because he first loved us. He continues, verse 17, By this, love is perfected with us. So that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. This idea of love being perfected. Calvin says it's abundantly poured forth. And it, it is really given so that it appears to be complete. 
That's God's love perfected in you. It is so poured forth, so evident in your life that another person would look at you and think they are complete in their salvation. They have been made perfect in their love. Now, dear friend, we will never, ever reach that perfection on this side of glory. But as God's love is perfected in us, we should be getting closer and closer to that such that the people of the world will look at us and think, They are being sanctified. They are being conformed to Christ. They look more and more like their Savior. And this love of God produces in us a holy affection. And that holy affection gives us confidence in the judgment. Matthew Henry writes, Their love to God assures them of God's love for them. And it consequently then assures them of the friendship of the Son of God. The more we love Christ, our friend, especially when we are sure that we know it, the more we can trust in His love. Our confidence in judgment is because we have confidence that Christ loves us because our lives prove that we love Him. Just like empty words fall short in earthly relationships, affirmation of Christ without a transformed life falls short. It doesn't cut it. It's meaningless. But as you walk out this profession of faith, you have confidence before the judgment because you see that Christ knows your love. Your profession has meaning and depth to it because your life is transformed. What's the basis of all this, the end of verse 17? Because as he is, so also are we in this world. This is kind of an already but not yet statement. As he is, we will one day be glorified, righteous, perfect, eternal. As he is, one day we will be. But John doesn't just stop there. He says, as he is, so also are we in this world. Because the work is done. We've received the guarantee of our salvation, the Spirit of God that he has put in us as our seal. We don't know the full perfection of our standing in Christ. But we know he delights in us because we're washed by the blood of his Son. We know that we will one day share in the inheritance of Christ. We know that the Father has pleasure in us. We know that the Son's righteousness is credited to us. As He is in heaven, so are you today, beloved saint. You're alive in Christ. Think about this idea. Sometimes the most encouraging and sanctifying thing you can say to a struggling saint, whether, whether they are struggling with assurance or if they're struggling with sin, sometimes the most encouraging and sanctifying thing you can do or say is to remind this, them of this fixed standing in Christ. As he is, so you are today. You're washed, you're cleansed, you're sanctified. And you will be kept 
until that glorious day when you see your Savior face to face. One more thought here, verse 18. There is no fear in love. The perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. The one who fears is not perfected in love. We read Romans 8, 15 earlier. You've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Those who are perfected do not fear. We don't fear punishment. Punishment here, the the Greek dictionary said it's an idea of a process. It's the fear of the eternal nature of the consequences of sin. And if you are being perfected in God's love through Christ by His Spirit, you don't have this fear because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's only hope. There's only joy. Christ is the great refuge. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10 that Christ rescues us from the wrath that is to come. Dear friends, let us Remember and recall and live in light of this great hope as you see God's love being perfected in you. Let this remind you that you have no fear of punishment. You have no fear in the judgment. You have no fear when the world is crashing in on you. When when the world comes to put you to death for your faith, you have no fear because you will die and you will go to be with Christ. Perfect love, John speaks of in verse 18, doesn't just gently press out fear. There's one cross-reference that I found in this term that's very interesting, and it's Acts 27, verse 14, where Paul is on the ship and it encounters this violent storm, and, and cast out is the same word that's used for the winds that just beat the sails of a ship. So that's what God's love being perfected in us does. It beats and casts out all fear of punishment because there's no condemnation because you have a glorious hope. Rather than being driven by every wind and wave of doctrine, be built up, be perfected in the love of God. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 4. Verses 14 through 16. I said we'd move fast, and and we have, and there's so much that we could have dug into in in those verses. But I want to come now to verses 19 through 21 and kind of draw together a summary. We've seen that God's love in us is spirit displaying, it's Christ proclaiming, it's hope producing, and lastly, it's faith confirming. Faith confirming. We love Verse 19, because he first loved us. Someone says, I love God, but hates his brother. He is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment that we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So again, this is kind of like a a summary to draw to a conclusion. John says, we love because he first loved us. The only reason you can love others 
or rightly, biblically love others and love the Lord is because he first loved you. If you should ever develop the slightest inkling that you have some merit in God's love for you or you have some goodness in your love for him or for others, John's statement should stop you in your tracks. All righteous, biblical love finds its root in God's love for you. His love was displayed for you and for me while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. No merit, nothing good, nothing desirable. And so while this points away from every merit, it should be so encouraging in our faith because God doesn't change. And those whom he loves, he will keep. And he will see through to the end. If your love for the Lord, your love for others depended on you, if your faith depended on you, dear friend, let me assure you that that faith would die. And you would fall right back into your original state of depravity. But you only love, you only have faith because God first loved you. He foreknew you. He predestines you. Those whom he predestines, he justifies. Those whom he justifies, he will sanctify. And then one day he will glorify. We need to walk in this humility of utter dependence upon the Lord if we would ever have assurance of our faith. Your assurance is because of his work. Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So that's the vertical component of how this love is faith-confirming. There's the horizontal component as well. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. The one who does not love his brother that he's seen, he cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is God's commandment for us, that the one who loves God must love his brother also. The one who does not love others cannot love the unseen God. If you are so self-centered that you can't love those who are right there before your face, you do not have the God-given capacity to love the one whom you have not seen. Really, this is the great two-point summary of God's law. We love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then we love one another as we love ourselves. It's both and. It's not either or. So we've kind of been all over the map a little bit today, so let's draw briefly, quickly into a summary, really, of of this whole section, going all the way back to chapter 3, verse 11. All the way back to chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. We've seen the examples of, the reasons for, the results of, the consequences if we fail to love one another. We've seen this call and command of God to love your brothers and sisters in Christ great takeaway is this. As we love the Lord, as we walk in his grace, he causes our love for him and for others to grow. That is, as John says, 
God perfecting His love in us. We love Him. We walk in His grace, and He perfects His love by causing us to love Him more and to love others in the way of Christ. Perfect love drives out all fear of punishment because perfect love drives us to the cross. Perfect love is only seen at the cross. So you, dear saint, come to that cross day after day after day, year after year after year. Come to the cross. See, love and mercy meet as the Son of God is stricken. Then see his foes lie crushed beneath his feet, for the conqueror has risen. Dear friend, this is our great hope. Christian life revolves around love. Not the squishy, emotional kind of love that the world wants to display, but a God-given love that shows and reveals itself by increasing our devotion and our affection for Him, a love that is shown by obedience. May the Lord transform our lives by perfecting His love in us. And in return, may we love Him May we be driven to a selfless, sacrificial love for one another. May we love Christ so much that we proclaim Him no matter the cost. All of this flows out of love. It's what Paul said, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a sincere faith. That is our goal, love from a pure heart. May the Lord accomplish that in us, his people, today. May he do it by his spirit and for his own glory. Let's pray.